0: Hello everybody and welcome to this next episode of Into the Prey, breaching the chaos of the church, all that horrendous chaos of the church. And we're doing that in this teaching series by coming into a place of learning and inquiry and humility, basically. Um, it may it may not sound like a humble conclusion to come to that the church are in chaos Firstly, I think it's very obvious that it is. And secondly, it is from a place of humility, as someone expressed to me recently, a place of distress. We should be distressed about the chaos and are coming into this kind of study. The studious posture before him is part of our humility because he is the only one that can rectify and redeem the chaos that we see. Um, And in one sense, there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new, um, there's nothing new, about what we're seeing but in another sense there is you know to make the point that there has never been a point in history before i'm thinking of our kind of civilized western developed context where children have been told they can choose their gender or experiment with pornography safely um where if you have children growing up in a culture where marriage will never be known as being just one man and one woman we're living in in one sense unparalleled historic days and i think that's the important Point of our coming into recognition of the chaos and our humility. Anyway, last week I talked about the the temples, the process of the dwelling of God, the tabernacling of God, changing throughout the ages, as regards to the people of God. God doesn't dwell in hands built by human in temples built by human hands. Of course, He doesn't. That's long gone. That was the tabernacling. That was the temple under Solomon. Originally, I didn't talk about this last week, but it was also in that in the in the way that Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. You know, I, didn't, I could have talked about that last week, but if you survey this this uh, the dwelling of God with man from the garden all the way through to the New Jerusalem at the end of Revelation, you see this amazing um, transformation. And we talked about that last week. We were thinking about that. Hope you've been thinking about that. Please do let us know your reflections. You can do that on the Jesus Come app and you can do that on the Instagram account as well. Um, one thing I want to just say about this is a verse from Hebrews about this process of the, of the filthy temples that we saw in Corinth. and I mentioned 2 Chronicles 29 when Hezekiah's reform was to cleanse the temple from the filth. And we often can feel like that, I think, even though we know theologically that we are the temples of the Holy Spirit, we've been filled by the Spirit of God, we've been sealed by the Spirit of God for the day of redemption, Ephesians 1.13, and we have a prospect of the fullness, the full dimensions, heights, breadth, width, depth, so on, of his love, and uh, Ephesians 3.16, that's to come, but we can, more often than not, I certainly can, not relate to it's hard to relate to that sense of the holiness of the temple you know as in in a way it's frustrating because we know that this new covenant is better by far infinitely so and yet when you reflect on the yearly entering into of the great high priest into the innermost sanctuary of the temple um, or of the tabernacle you know you have that sense of the holiness of god the imminence of god the power of god and yet for us as temples we don't really feel like temples a lot of the time i think that's probably fair to say um, we can feel dirty, we can feel condemned, we can feel weak. And actually listen to this verse here because this answers that, that tension, that apparent tension. Um, in Hebrews ten fourteen, I love this verse, it's really worthy of memorising. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. F- for by a single offering, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John said. He, that's Jesus obviously, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, he has perfected, he's done it, it is finished as he says Um, in that moment before he gave up his spirit, the paradidomi of the cross, his giving up of his spirit in the full trust and intimacy of proximity to the Father and that's what that word paradidomi means when he gave up the ghost so to speak. Um, in that moment it is finished he says he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified so it's both and it's a done deal but it's also something that's being done <laughs> it's something that god is out working in us and i think that should be a deep encouragement to us if we often feel that the temple um our bodies as the temple of the spirit aren't um always what they should be but we do have that prospect don't we of the dwelling of of God with man what this will finally experience at the end of the age when Jesus comes and when and when Jesus makes all things right every tear will be wiped away every injustice will be dealt with and the way that he meant things to be will finally be redeemed so these verses today I'm going to read chapter four I'm going to read see how much I can get through I'm only going to teach from the first kind of six, seven verses today, so we'll be in this chapter for a few weeks. But I think because of some of the stunning bits in here, uh, particularly where Paul talks about um, the apostles in, in the kind of middle section of this chapter, I'll read the whole thing for context and then try and move as quickly as I can. So 1 Corinthians 4, So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you, or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. And will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings. And without us, how I wish that you really had become kings so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe. angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ. But you are so wise in Christ. We are weak. But you are strong. You are honoured. We are dishonoured. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason I am sending you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere, in every church. Some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip or in love and with a gentle spirit? So six, six, five or six, seven verses, something like that today I'll go through. Um, first, I want to pick up on verse one. Um, where Paul, again, talking in his the tents of the the apostle, his apostolic office. This then is how you ought to regard us. As he says, he's talking uh he's talking in his apostolic office that i've mentioned a number of times this this differentiation between the general christian landscape of what it means to be a a spirit-filled temple and then the office of apostle um and so that's that's what he's saying here is that you ought to regard us and that's what he's meaning apollos peter john et al um in this way. Now it it does throw up the the whole thing again that's I think a, a parallel thought throughout this this series for us. Um about the the off the, the different offices that we see in Ephesians two. Oh sorry, my mistake, Ephesians four four Ephesians four eleven to prepare God's people for works of service. And he's given some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be teachers, pastors and so on. The fivefold um the fivefold giftings um and so that's what he's saying he's beginning this this little section by saying this is how you ought to regard us not not generally us as servants I'll come to the whole thing of servants in a minute but the apost- the apost- apostolic office if you think about acts 1 21 to 22 this is these were the original conditions as it were to who was who was an apostle this is what it says in acts 1 21 therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men this is when Uh, Judas was being replaced. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us. So that seems to be something significant, Um, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So those, that, that's what it meant to be an apostle, like Paul was an apostle. And of course, that doesn't happen today. That's not the same uh, dispensation we're in a different time. And yet, there are still callings and giftings of apostle, prophet, teacher, pastor, evangelist. You know, that's that's what Ephesians 4 teaches. And of course, we see that abused, we see that neglected to both extremes. And it does come back to the big question about... If Paul is saying to us, eagerly desire the gift of the Spirit, especially the gift of prophecy, and we don't do that, then what's the effect? We can't just assume, I think we do assume, that there, there is no effect. You know, cessationists who deny that the gifts are still active today, that the Spirit is still who he who he was, you know, um, can't ignore that fact, that if if the Spirit does still do that today, if he still does give his gifts, and if the command, it's not a suggestion, and if the command is to eagerly desire, and we either neglect that in unbelief or outright reject it in unbelief, we we are so short sighted it's unbelievable. Um, so that's that's the first thing to say about the first verse. This then is how you ought to regard us and then he's as the apostles and then but as the unique apostles, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries of God. With the mysteries God has revealed. So here we are, this is the metaphor, the the next big metaphor in this um list of metaphors that Paul gives. This one is the servant and steward metaphor. So he's talking about this is the way that the church is the way the people should regard Paul and the other apostles is as a servant. Um I think the main thing to take away from this little verse here is the fact that so often we see in the church a a little bit like what I was just saying about the cessationist or the, the the kind of neglect and abuse of some of the gifts um there's there's similarly a kind of neglect or abuse of leadership now Paul doesn't let the Corinthians get away with either kind of extreme thought on this he doesn't he doesn't let them get away with thinking that um, that somehow they're to be held in esteem kind of above and out from the main body of the church he's making it, he's making it very clear that he is and they are to be considered and to be regarded as servants you know again he he will implore the the corinthians shortly to imitate his way of life and yet he he is looking at christ of course he is he's resolved to know nothing apart from jesus christ and him crucified so he he's looking at the selfless service the servant king of christ himself and imitating that following that aspiring to that but also calling others to do the same but he's not he's not then allowing them to Although he does go on to talk about the apostles being regarded as scum, but that shouldn't—that's not in regard to the church. That's in regard to the world. You know, and it's linked to the whole thought of becoming a fool for Christ as well, becoming a foolish scum, apostle for Christ. That's what he's saying. Um, But it's important that he's—he's saying it's it's important to realise that he's saying to the Corinthians on one hand, you should regard us as servants. You shouldn't regard us as something other than a servant. Um, you know some kind of elite member of this body but equally you should regard you should respect us as those who have been entrusted with the secrets of god so in other words there should be a respect for the leader for the apostle for the servant that is is actually a beautiful thing if you think about it on the one hand he's saying you should regard us as servants but you should also respect us as such and often we see the abuses of that by the adulation celebrity focus that often church leaders are given that happens very commonly um and i do think that's related to to some major moral sin issues um that i might refer to in a minute but equally you then see the um you can see the disrespect to leaders can't you i'm sure I'm sure everybody's experienced that on some level, but it's important to just acknowledge here that Paul is talking about apostolic leadership here, and he's saying this is how you should regard us, as servants but also as those who've been entrusted with the mysteries of God. And so when you see... People and it's, it's this particular outworking of this overall problem of immaturity in Corinth is that you know, the, there were obviously factions as we've covered previously, with some wanting to follow Apollos and some wanting to follow Peter, and some wanting there were different splits and different um, groups basically. It's like a big playground, you know, where everyone has their little group and cliques, but it's as wrong for there to be disrespect. Um, as well as kind of emperor worship, put it that way, um, with Christian leaders. And Paul's saying that's not how you should regard You should regard us as servants, but as those who've, who are to be respected. That's basically what he's saying. Um, and then he goes on in verse 2 to say, um, now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. So he's referring to themselves. I can't remember what the exact Greek word is, but it's linking to the word oikos, which means household. In the Greek, um, we did a project a number of years ago called, I think it was just called Oikos, and it was focusing on the home and how the home should be the focus of um, of of worship and the focus of community and so on. And this this word, there are these two words here that Paul uses: a servant of Christ. That's the first one, and then there's those entrusted. Um, with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, um, this whole thing about those who've been entrusted like that—how to prove faithful. Um, this is for your notes. Verse two: the rarity of faithfulness and the casualness of infidelity. And we see this so much today. The ca- the rarity of faithfulness. Many a man claims his own steadfast love, but a faith. Man who can find Proverbs twenty twenty six. Many a man claims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find the rarity of faithfulness and the casualness of infidelity and the the the, the very tragic um, when the news comes that a you know a significant leader, significant Christian leader, has had an affair. You know, married with family and had an affair. And it happens, apparently, quite a lot. And not only does it happen quite a lot, it seems to be dealt with very casually quite a lot. We're living in a day and age where faithfulness is underrated beyond belief. If more men of God had the desire to be faithful as a life ambition to their wives and to their families and to their, to their people, then they were bothered about book contracts or how how many people will come into their church blah 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 all these other things if more if more christian men were like that perhaps there would be less occurrences of now i'm some of you may already think i'm beginning to sound judgmental and i'm going to come to that in a minute because that is a big tricky focus of this of this passage today But to think, just keep in mind that the rarity of faithfulness and the casualness of infidelity, when when it's it's as though it wasn't bad enough when you hear about a Christian brother having an affair, but then to then look at how that is dealt with, not just uh, on an individual level, but as a corporate level as well. But in a case I'm thinking of at the minute, as I heard about just this week, a prominent Christian leader, um from a very well-known worldwide church, um, has stopped stopped his position of leadership because because of, of one of these moral failings, one of these affairs. And part of me, when I heard about it, wasn't surprised. I mean, that should say something in itself when you hear about these things and you're not always surprised, such is the kind of landscape that we're living in. But in reading this this guy's statement on his social media account, it then showed me that the casual disregard for what was going on in terms of um, a Christian leader who can behave like that and and get to a point where that is even a possibility, but then to still assume a position of leadership where you can, in the process of communicating the misdemeanor to to the masses you're still in the frame of mind where you think that you've got the authority or the credence the credibility or whatever to still give a leadership lesson to the people that you've let down it's disgusting to have the it's disgusting to have the rarity of the faithfulness but also the casualness regarding the unfaithfulness and I think that's that's something I wanna just drop into this podcast today is and it does link to Melvin Tinker's session before about cultural Marxism and the general landscape in the church, the standards that's just seemed to be so low, where men of God, people who men, leaders called into positions, privileged, high positions this is the thing, the apostolic role that Paul's talking about here, the, the kind of servant position that should be respected by the masses. But how can you respect that? Not just the weakness of the flesh, but then the arrogance and the pride and the lack of true repentance in a, in a social media post that it's not excusing the, um, the misdemeanor, but it's just the casualness of language around communicating it to people give you an example about this okay Mary and I were watching a a BBC drama just recently called Roadkill with an actor called Hugh Laurie very very well-known British actor really good um but this this unfortunately this I mean I loved I loved I quite liked this particular drama I was drawn to it because it was quite Bond-esque it was all kind of centered around Westminster and you know 10 Downing Street and I love that kind of thing it does reveal a very seedy world, by the way. We really should be praying for that specific postcode. of 10 Downing Street is, uh, I think it's a very dark place. But anyway, um, in this drama we'd been watching, Hugh, Hugh Laurie had been playing the uh, Minister of Justice. And to cut a longer story short, the whole storyline revolved around, in part at least, revolved around the fact that he was having an affair. And... Again, I think we should watch things like that because, again, they're just so normalized, aren't they? They're just normalized by the media. And again, I think that is part of the cultural Marxist agenda is to normalize these things that should shock us. Um, But the actual portrayal of this in this drama was so casual in regard to the unfaithfulness that it got to the point where one of the daughters in the family... So there was the the father who played it was played by Hugh Laurie. Then there was the wife who'd been um, cheated on, and then there was two daughters, and they were sat around the dinner table because one of the daughters had called this family meeting because she'd learnt about her father's unfaithfulness with this other woman, and she'd called them together around the table to discuss it. She was in outrage, and quite rightly so. She wanted some answers. Um, but the thing that distressed me in watching it, and this is at the point where we decided to stop watching it and turn it off, was the casual regu- the casualness of the way that something as shocking as unfaithfulness was being handled. You essentially had a family meeting of the mum and the dad, the husband and the wife and the two girls, sat around having a roast chicken dinner discussing the reality of the, inf- the unfaithfulness, the infidelity of the father. As though it was, which energy supplier should we switch to? Which film should we watch on TV tonight? What do you want for pudding? And when I read, when I read certain leaders, I'm I'm doing my best to not to not, not actually name the guy. But when I read certain individuals' um, social media posts, telling the world that they've been unfaithful, and I look at the way that that's expressed. Very, very little by way of humility still gripping onto this kind of pedestal from which they've fallen in the use of language or, or the, the things that they've chosen to say or the things that they've not said. You know, you just know when someone's giving an apology and it's genuine and you, we all know what it's like to be given an apology. There's no apology at all. We should all know what it's like to hear somebody who is genuinely repentant and indeed the church. Are the church genuinely repentant or are they more like this individual on a larger scale? Are they more like this individual who's kind of repentant, kind of um, confessing, kind of showing a sense of coming to their senses? Or is there still this pride hanging on to the way we're thinking, the way we're speaking? We heard that from the, the podcast with Dave Brennan on Friday. The way we think about things directly influences what we say. And so... Paul is saying here to these guys that of himself and of the apostolic and this is the this really is the focus of the uh, of this passage at the beginning is he's, he's making the point that what responsibility it is to do what I even what I'm doing now and so I would ask you to pray for, for myself or for anybody else who teaches you know biblically you don't have to have a, a master's degree in theology to understand that those who teach a, have an, a level of accountability that's greater a responsibility to the grace. So I would value your prayers, even just generally with everything that we're doing. I the mean, there's lots often going on in the background. But Paul Paul is making this point. And I think our world today, again, thinking of Corinth and how it relates to today, is so relevant. You know, just when you read these these accounts of Christian guys who are still leading massive ministries, teaching tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people, And there are serious question marks over how something as serious as infidelity and how that's dealt with, again, by the individuals involved and the people who are supposed to be there as safeguards in an organisational sense um, or eldership sense within within the accountability. It's just, it really... (sighs) It's a disgrace, and that's the bottom line. This kind of stuff is a disgrace, and the bar is so low. Can we be part of, in our day and age, the prophetic work of reformers? Can we be part of somehow raising the bar? Not that that's something we do in and of ourselves, but we can certainly call certain things out and call people to a higher level. The rarity of faithfulness and the casualness of infidelity many a man claims his own steadfast love but a faithful man who can find perhaps that's what god's asking at this time in history to all of us you know we read read from chronicles before recently about his eyes ranging to and throw across the earth and to find those whose hearts would be fully committed to him maybe that's what god's asking of me of us individually like where where can I find a man? Where can I find a household? Where can I find find a city? Where can I find you know, that the priority there would be faithfulness. And evidently this issue of faithfulness wasn't enough for the Corinthians to to regard Paul properly in the way he should. There was clearly not an um Paul the fact that Paul was having to point out that he was they weren't just servants, but those entrusted with the secrets of God. there was clearly going stuff going on in Corinth where there wasn't respect and so on and if we look at the next verse verse three says here um i care very little if i'm judged by you so he, paul was being judged and i think we're to understand this judge as we're about to find out in a minute in terms of what's what's a good what, what's the right way that we're commanded to judge and, and the wrong way i think we are understand here where he says i if i'm judged by you or any human court. He doesn't care. Paul, firstly, he doesn't care. Paul Paul wasn't bothered by that. He literally says, I don't care. Or I care very little if I'm judged by you. But secondly, that he was being judged. Um. What What then becomes very apparent is indeed, I love what he says here. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. Let me just say something about that. How often can we be our worst judges? I know, again, that's true for myself. You end up just beating yourself up with a baseball bat. Um. And actually, you need to remember that Christ is your only judge as much as he's the next person's judge. And the only person who can judge anybody, including yourself, is Jesus. We tend, I think, to think, again, talking of extremes that I'll talk about in a minute, but I think we tend to think of ourselves too highly and too lowly. And we find getting the right place in between those two errors quite hard. Again, speaking from experience. What's important to remember, though, that is that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Paul knew that, which is why he resolved to know nothing while he was with them except Jesus Christ. No wonder that's what he resolved to know, is that he he'd come to this mature understanding. Despite the horrors of his past and the things that Paul did, if, you, if you've you not read John Pollock's um biography of the life of paul john pollock and it's it's one of the most beautiful books i've ever read and it gives you insight into paul and into the journeys of paul and you know, you know paul's background that's why he went on at a later point to say he was the chief of sinners so there must have been those kind of lingering memories of his previous way of life um but he'd come to this place in verse four my conscience is clear And coming into the, for that freedom, oh, it's, such a, it's such an incomparable reality that peace, the peace of God, a clear conscience, doing the right thing, whatever that means in any individual situation. There is nothing like it. And again, as an exemplar, as an example of a mature christian servant leader who'd been entrusted with things of god paul had come to this place of a clear conscience and yet he then goes on to say that it's not that clear conscience that makes him innocent it is the lord who judges me in in the day and age in which paul was writing you had the roman and greek uh the, the greek and the roman philosophers like um plato and seneca who's Understanding of conscience was that it was that an individual's conscience was the chief arbiter, as it were, of their judgment, of their final judgment. Uh, You know, the whole value of know thyself. Settle within yourself, sort it out, you know, and it is true. It's frighteningly easy to ignore the promptings of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, it's frighteningly easy to enter into that, you know, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death, Proverbs 14, 26. You know, that is a, a scary reality that we can and often I think even are capable of thinking that our conscience is clean and that doesn't make us innocent. That's what Paul's saying here. Let's read it again. What does he say? My conscience is clear. Hallelujah. We shouldn't ignore that. I just feel like even in that this morning, just as I'm reading that, that that whole thing of a clear conscience, there's nothing like that. But at the same time, in the same sentence, he's saying, that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul's hope, and this is a... And for people who have fallen from grace, people who have committed serious moral, you know, serious serious issues like affairs and... This is a door of hope um because what does he what's Paul's hope in then if it's not his clear conscience are you recognizing that that's not it this this let me just read to you what is his hope, and again, this is for those of us who have just a, in a daily sense this is our bread and butter, but again, thinking of men and women who have had serious falls. Uh, Romans four five says, How, however, to the one who does not, no- sorry, let me start again. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Romans four five. I think it's the NIV that says ungodly, but the ESV says the wicked. But God justifies the wicked. God justifies the ungodly. That's where Paul's hope is. <laughs> that's why again he resolves to know what there's no wonder he doesn't resolve he doesn't try and know anything else he's he was wicked and ungodly as we all were when we were enemies of god and yet he made us into the righteousness of god in christ jesus so the issue here of paul's conscience is not having a clear conscience that his that's not his hope his hope is that one day when he stands before christ and jesus judges that He will know the one he stands before as having justified the ungodly. That's such a great key to freedom. There is no condemnation, as he writes at the beginning of Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. And what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his son goes into a trickier session section here and that's that's just going to i'm going to reread this um I care verse three i care very little if i'm judged by you or by any human court indeed i do not even judge myself verse four my conscience is clear but that does not make me innocent it is the lord who judges me therefore judge nothing before the appointed time wait until the lord comes he will bring to light whatever is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart at that time each will receive their praise from God. So verses 3, 4 and 5. It's definitely a trickier section this and is, um, I, I think, been a bit more of a focus for my thinking this week. But Paul evidently, um, it, it's, this is where Paul can be annoying I've said this before, because you, you read him and you have to do... a. You read what he says, but then you have to do a lot of work to go and find out what he really meant or what he was really saying. And in face value, Paul is very clear here. What seems to be very clear is saying not to judge. Not to judge anything or anyone. Leave it to God, basically. Leave it to the end of the age where Jesus appears. Um. But Paul evidently isn't saying that, that the Corinthians should never judge. I mean, that or past judgment. That's just not even consistent with Scripture. So let's just take a look at some Scriptures quickly in passing here to make the point. Even in this book, okay, so this is not even consulting the wider uh, council of Scripture about this issue of whether Christians should be judged. And by the way, it's an immaturity when you hear Christians say, you you shouldn't judge. That's a bit judgy. That's a little bit judgy. Why don't you focus on what's in your own eye before you start looking at your brother's? That, that for me, that attitude is an immature attitude, an immature understanding of what the Bible teaches, what Paul taught and what Jesus taught about ju- judgment and judging. Let's just read some of these things within the, the actual book that we're in. So earlier in 1 Corinthians two 15, we've been there already. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things. Do you remember Remember we were talking about that whole thing of if you, met, if you walk into a coffee shop or a gym and you're a spirit filled temple of the most high God, you have an authority. Of course you do. And that means you're, able to, you're in a position of being able to make judgments about certain things that people who aren't temples of the Holy Spirit cannot. It's an impossibility. It would be like saying that the temple to Apollos, filled with all the filth, was able to be holy and pure before Yahweh. It's a nonsense. It's just, it doesn't make sense. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things. Well, that's not what Paul just said, is it? Or is it? 1 Corinthians 5.12, another example. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? This is Paul. We'll come into that in future weeks. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? So quite the contrary, Paul is now saying. He's not only only saying you should be judging, he's saying you should specifically be judging those who were Christians. And God will deal with the rest of things. And that's another message wake-up call for these 71 church leaders that want to call the government to account whilst not looking at themselves in the mirror properly. God will deal with the government We need to be dealing with ourselves. 1 Corinthians 6.2, so again, we'll come to that. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? So there's three examples, 1 Corinthians 2.15, 1 Corinthians 5.12 and 1 Corinthians 6.2, where Paul is saying the exact opposite of what he seems to be saying here in 1 Corinthians 4.5, where he says, not to judge. Let's just read the verse in this chapter again. What does he say in verse 5? Um, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes, etc, etc, etc. So what's going on here? Well, before I answer that, let me just reinforce what I'm saying here. That Paul clearly is not saying that we should never judge. We should never judge. That's just not the conclusion to take. Let's. We have to refer to, to, to Jesus. So another couple of scriptures for you. John seven twenty four. Jesus said, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Jesus is saying, stop making wrong judgments and make the right ones. He's not saying, don't judge. So how, un- how unbiblical is it? How unbiblical are we when we take the attitude of, that's a bit judgy. Stop. The Bible says you shouldn't judge. Jesus said you shouldn't judge. No, he didn't. He said, he- he said the exact opposite. Matthew 19, 28. Listen to this. This again, Jesus, I tell you the truth. Jesus always tells the truth. In a day and in a world where you just can't know who's telling the truth, very truly I say to you, who else can say that? Jesus always tells the truth. I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. <laughs> twelve the the number of re- representing government, you know, the government of the kingdom, and Jesus is saying there. I say that if you follow me now, you're going to be you're going to end up judging the twelve tribes of Israel for Pete's sake. And then you've got people saying, if someone like me says it's a disgrace for a massive leader whose name will remain anonymous has had an affair, and not only is it disgraceful that he's had an affair, it's disgraceful for the way he's communicating about it. And then people say, that's a bit judgy. No, it's, it's not judgy. It's, it's responding to the state of the church, the chaos of the church. This is one one commentator says of this apparent disparity between Paul saying, do not judge, wait until the Lord comes. And then on the other hand, in just a few verses make a right judgment as jesus said this is what one commentator says that paul is not to be understood here as of judging persons in authority sorry that the verse is saying that this shouldn't be understood to mean people in authority so he's not um he's not saying of himself do not judge um or within the verge of their office nor of private judging concerning facts that are notorious he's not saying do not judge about that what he is saying do not judge about is of judging persons' future state or the secret springs and principles of their actions, or about facts doubtful in themselves. That's how, that should be helpful, because what's what should be paramount in our mind here about this issue of judgment, and the and the role and the responsibility and calling of each of us as spirit-filled temples, Christians of God. Um is that we have to keep in mind that which is explicitly sinful and that which is unknowable that's the broad distinction that i think is right to keep in mind about this issue in other words we shouldn't be second guessing what someone's motive is for doing something if it's not if it's not explicitly clearly a sinful issue to then enter into a place of judgment is over them is is a dodgy territory to be in, let alone to do that rashly or quickly or as a matter of habit. It's important to be careful of becoming, by nature, someone who would quickly or unlovingly, or both of those things are often hand in hand, um, judgmental. Um, but it's also important, I think equally important, to to not become the type of Christian who is very slow to form the right judgments the the kind of preoccupation that there is with the the mere appearance of things and you there is there is two there are two extremes there where we can become so um, quick to judge that we're not in the right place with God, and equally we can be so focused on the ways of the world and conforming to the ways of the world. That we're not quick enough and bold enough and faith-filled enough to make right decisions. So making the right judgment is important, and we shouldn't be. Um, the territory we should be on is that which is obviously sin- sinful. Now Paul goes on to address this in the next chapter. When we get to chapter five, it'll probably be in your Bible as something like expel the immoral brother. Now Paul Paul deals with this like he's dealing with stuff. He was dealing with stuff then, like we're like we should be seeing being dealt with now, like incest in this case. You know, if a brother is an, a brother, quote-unquote, um, Paul goes on to say not even to have dinner with somebody who calls himself a brother but behaves in a certain way. Do you see what I'm saying? It's like, that's in the Bible. Um, so what this takeaway from this is not to... is to avoid the understanding of judgment being something that we are never to be exercising. We should never make judgments about it. We just end up being diluted... You know, to to quote Inspector Grimm from the Thin Blue Line, we're just fanning around namby pamby ladi dar, sun dried tomato eating. <sighs> just you know, it's it's a level of Christianity that I don't want to be part of. If we can't look at something and call it a spade a spade, then it's not honouring. And we think we're honouring God when we're like that. Like, oh, don't be so judgy. Don't just ch-. that's not godly, and that's not consistent with what Scripture is saying by the way inspector Grimm from the thin blue line um his his uh personal preference would be that every every single person in the country was locked up until proven innocent <laughs> so that is a good example of um the the wrong extreme of this uh of this whole issue of judgment but we do have to keep in mind don't we that paul's words um, ultimately are pointing us all back to this reality that as I've said from the very first session in this series about paul drilling into the into the culture of the church into the new disciples and to the old disciples is that Jesus is coming that this is the reality that and so he points he's constantly pointing isn't he to the day of the Lord that we see capitalized a number of times in this book um Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. There will be an appoint. There is an appointed time where we'll all stand before the judgment seat. Um. Wait till the Lord comes. Gosh, I mean, it feels like a long time coming, doesn't it? Sometimes when we see the injustices of the world, but he is coming and he is going to bring to light what's hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. We do need to learn to understand how to deal with the praise and the rejection of men. Um, that's difficult. We'll come to that next week. When Paul says amazing things like responding to slander in kindness, I mean, I personally I find that impossible. Most of. Uh, Not impossible, but difficult. That's a better way of putting it. Very difficult to be slandered and then to pause and then to apply in kindness, especially the kind of kindness that's genuine from a heart. And it's linked to that reality of Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. That's not a theoretical, that's not a theoretical thing. That's a truth that comes from the spirit. So it's very obvious that Paul is at a different level here, and I find that very humbling myself, so much to learn Regarding the um just the stuff that comes from prophetic ministry or apostolic ministry or whatever you want to call it. God knows. So he's pointing people to the day, and if you think back to the previous chapter, just even on the same page here, so he's 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 kind of stirring the church towards that kind of fear of the inevitability of the day when we stand before him. And and the previous context, as we've talked about, is the the thoroughness and the quality of our work and how that will be revealed, how that will survive or not survive through the fire of God on that day. So he's doing the same thing here. So if you compare uh, chapter 3... Um just looking at verse thirteen, his work will be shown for what it is, because because the day will bring it to light, it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. And then you've got similar kind of thinking here. He's saying, Don't judge. Wait, wait for you know, judge rightly, as we've as we've already heard. Um but he will bring, he will come and he will bring to light that what's hidden. So everything is going to be dealt with, everything that's lurking in the dark, thinking even in centuries gone by that people think they've got away with they haven't got away with anything everything every single eye will be dotted and t will be crossed every single detail throughout the ages will be dealt with before the judgment seat of christ and we should have that firmly in mind what a conversely encouraging thought but also frightful one as well paul goes on in verse six here let's just see if i can wrap this up for this week now brothers if you read a more recent version of the NIV, it says, "Brothers and sisters, I've I've got my older NIV here." Um, verse six: Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, "Do not go beyond what is written." That's important. Then you will not take pride in one man over another. Verse seven: For who makes you different from any from anyone else? This is where Paul goes into his little trilogy his trio of questions that he he does throughout this book for, for who makes you different from anyone else what do you have that you did not receive and if you did not if you did receive it why do you boast as though you did not so you just imagine paul sending them all off home to do some more homework and then come back when they're ready to have a bit more conversation maybe you did i don't know but um paul it's 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 always good, and I think this is why it's a value of leadership that I have, is to be transparent. You can be inappropriately transparent, of course. But if you're listening and sitting under a ministry and teaching ministry of somebody that never talks about their life, or where this lands with them, or how this has moved them, corrected them, how it's brought them to tears. I read Psalm 106 yesterday, and I was, I was weeping. Just the, the God is so good. <laughs> His word is so good. He's so, lo- He's so long-suffering. And gracious, and if you're sitting in a, if you, Paul's applying this to himself and to the other apostles, and he's saying, imitate us, and he's essentially saying, imitate me because I've imitated, because I'm, I've imitated, I am imitating Jesus. But if you're if you're not in that context where you've got a framework of leadership that that offers personal application, personal transparency, that's appropriate, it's not good. It's not healthy, um, and so. Again, Paul is correcting this immaturity of the immature understanding of leadership and um, just him making the point that he's applied these things to himself and to Apollos for their benefit. You see that? So it's their benefit that he's doing that. So that they may learn from us. It begs the question, if there isn't a personal application of these things, are people really learning from teachers and preachers and church leaders who don't apply these things to themselves, the blind leading the blind ah uh, God um, these these three questions I think maybe I'll, I'll start next week's session with these and come back to ask to kind of focus them on a bit for for the three questions that maybe we can think about over the next seven days for who makes you different from anyone else. Without preempting things too much, certainly not Paul or Apollos or Peter or John or anyone else. In the same way that it's only Christ that judges, he's the only one that makes him different from anyone else. We are different, of course we are. We should be distinct, separate, knowably, recognisably different. Foolish. What do you have that you did not receive? The gospel is a gift. Faith is a gift. We don't have anything that we've not received, and uh, that should be the determining factor on how we. Um, how we live, how we think, how we move and have our being. Does that mean to say that because we are, because we have received the grace of the gospel and that means that we can never judge or we can, no, I think it's the exact opposite. I think there's a standard to call people to. When Paul says in in Ephesians 5.11, have nothing to do with deeds of darkness, but rather expose them, that ultimately is a loving part of what it means to be a recipient of this kind of grace, doesn't it? You know, if you've received grace, you then can't turn a blind eye to certain things. And so Paul is saying that we have to be brave and bold to confront these things. Um, but we do so in love and humility. And asking, I think, as a, as a good way of finishing here, just to ask that the Holy Spirit would create in us that kind of heart that David I think David knew um where he's able to look at the slanderers and the persecutors the immature and say father forgive them they don't know what they're doing some practical questions because we were preaching approaching a preaching that's quite a cool word a preaching approaching the third um the third way through this book so a pre- uh, getting to that point some questions that I think would be good re- for reflection um, what what's God saying to you? I think you know it might sound like an obvious thing. You might have somebody to talk to about. You might be on your own. I don't know. You might not have others to bounce ideas off of. But to maybe write down, you know, it's a good it's a good thing. A man becomes more precise when he writes. Writing helps a man become more precise. Write some things down, even if you do have people to talk to. What's God saying to you? What's he what's he showing you afresh in this book? The reality is, we could study this book for the rest of ever, forever, and it will never be exhausted. He's always speaking. Um, Just some ideas that what he might be saying to us or to you, certainly saying some very clear things to myself. Recognizing the kingdom of heaven with its topsy-turvy realities, i.e. foolishness and wisdom and weakness and strength. What about a growing desire to proclaim the cross, to take Jesus to people rather than inviting people to church? Maybe God is going to lead us into repentance about our obsession with needing a church building open in order for us to do the most basic aspect of being a christian disciple which is to take him to people maybe he's leading us into repentance about that maybe he's removing the scales from our eyes about that maybe he's leading you into a willingness to become a fool to not need to be seen as being anything other than a fool uh, this 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 uh again this fascination with just wanting to be wise and mature and And what about a desire for true unity and truth around truth and rejecting false unity for the sake of appearances maybe that's something that's brimming up inside you this desire for true unity with christians that's true truly around the objective truths of who god says god is not the subjective pet fancies that we'd all rather bow down and worship as the idols that they often are. Another thing he had not even written on here, but what about idols? Maybe God's speaking to you about idols, personal idols, corporate idols. Getting underneath the surface to the roots of those, those things, God wants to empty and cleanse. Um, what about, he might be speaking to you about leadership, a correction of the overestimation The adulation of leaders, or maybe disrespect—maybe you've been convicted about being disrespectful towards leadership. Maybe, maybe you've been stung by leadership previously, burnt by uh, abusive, overbearing leadership that has resulted in your disrespect to all leaders. Maybe God wants to speak to you about that. What fleeing sexual immorality? Maybe some of you listening to that are struggling with sexual sin and don't know how to flee. Don't know how to cultivate an accountable relationship with others that will literally make the difference between victory and defeat holiness and bondage being willing to be outspoken maybe god's asking you to be willing to be outspoken you know this whole thing of resolving to know nothing about the cross you know nothing bar the cross sorry you know that that's going to involve upsetting people maybe you've been too concerned about what people think and say being willing to expose deeds of darkness as I was just saying and ultimately a desire to glorify God above all things as Paul says in Philippians whether by life or by death thank you Lord now that you are speaking to us even in this moment today for those listening you're speaking to us personally in our homes in our relationships our marriages and you are keeping your body before us before our eyes pray that we would know with certainty, with conviction, what it is you're saying to us and how that relates directly, as it will, to your body and how personal renewal in our lives reflects what you're doing in the church and will impact what's going on within the church. Help us to be part of that. Lord, I pray especially for the areas that feel judgment-worthy. We know that sometimes, Lord, you reveal things, not for us to judge, but for us to be able to see you judge. And Lord, I think we do all long for that ultimate judgment where you wrap everything up. You deal with every atrocity, you deal with every dictator, you deal with every hidden sin. But also, Lord, that you would teach us what it means to be those who judge now in the way that you, you say to us to make the right judgment, that we have a future that we can barely imagine where we sit on thrones over the tribes of Israel. Lord, and I pray that you'd give us courage, particularly when it comes to calling out stuff in the church. We leave the world to you, Lord. We pray. We pray that the world would come to know you but we don't we leave that to you we follow scriptural clear scriptural teaching that holiness judgment as it were starts within the house of God and pray that you'd give us all courage to speak and to pray about that as you mean us to in Jesus name we pray together for your glory father in Jesus precious name amen i just thank everybody again for tracking with this teaching series particularly just a bit more intense teaching through this book want to flag up again this coming week we've got a conversation with Anne Widdicombe British politician, member of the European Parliament that'll be interesting so that's coming up, tell a friend, shove it in someone's direction and until next week we pray again come Lord Jesus, have your way